Hi, friends. Welcome to season two of Bar at the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Felipe Maya. Felipe is the Assistant Professor of Theology at Boston University School of Theology. Raised in the Methodist Church in Brazil, Felipe's theological education brought him to the U.S. He has authored and edited several publications, including Trading Futures and the forthcoming book, Methodism and American Empire, Reflections on Decolonizing the Church. Felipe is brilliant, and some might be intimidated by his theological depth and philosophical range, but he is approachable in part because he's grounded in his native experience, and he's personally invested in the ideas of church and justice and mission. We covered a lot of ground talking about things from economics to eschatology, to decolonization and regionalization. And yet, Felipe reminds us that even in the season of Advent, we are called to be committed to hope and the prophetic tradition of transforming communities. This is a must listen for all of us who want to be a part of the continuing and emerging worldwide United Methodist Church. You're gonna need that notebook and that choice beverage. So enjoy this interview with Felipe Maya. Dr. Felipe Maya, how you doing today? Pretty good, I'm glad to be here, very glad. Oh man, Felipe, I'm so grateful that you're willing to join me on the podcast for 5,000 reasons that uh, I'm not gonna go into it right now because we really, ju I just wanna get into the story, but there's just so much that I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey and your work. And I do think that um, you're gonna bring a needed perspective to the conversation we're cultivating on Bar of the Conference. So I always start with this question of um, how you became a United Methodist Christian. Uh, and I recognize that you uh, weren't born in the United Methodism. So I'd love to just hear how you became a Methodist Christian and then eventually a United Methodist Christian and God's provenient grace acting in your life to bring you into the church. Yeah, it's a gift being here. Thank you, Derek. Uh, thanks to all the listeners too. So I, I've been a Methodist all my life, really, and my the Methodist DNA runs deep into my family. I, I, I'm, I was born and raised in a Methodist household in Brazil, raised in a Methodist church in Brazil. And I think my ancestors in Methodism go back to the very early days of, of Methodism in the country. It's really hard to trace, but uh, as far as I know, I'm a fourth generation Methodist uh, of Brazilian Methodists. So on my father's side, my uh, grandparents were uh, converted to Methodism at some point in the 1920s, 1930s, possibly, uh, possibly before that. Um, on my father, on my mother's side, it's even harder to discern. It's it's probably earlier than that. So I have a great grandfather who was, you know, a circuit writer. So he established churches in areas uh, in one area of the country. So Methodism runs deep into my story. I was born and raised not only in a Methodist church, but also in a Methodist school. Uh, in fact, the, the first Methodist 
school established in Brazil is in my hometown. And it was the school that I attended from kindergarten all the way to high school. Uh, so I spent all my life in, in Methodism and especially in Methodist education. My parents were Methodist teachers. And, and so there's that aspect of me being Methodism just because I was and my ancestors were. So there, that, that's the, the legacy of the family. Um, and as uh, I moved to the U.S. in 2009 for grad school, and been joining United Methodist Churches ever since. Taught United Methodist Studies at uh, for a while at Pacific School of Religion in California in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and now teaching at Boston University School of Theology, uh, an official United Methodist Seminary. Though my responsibilities are no longer teaching Methodism necessarily, uh, Methodism is so important to everything that I do, uh, and it shows up in in everything that I do and write about. Um, so it's 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 a long long journey of Methodism that I think believes that begins actually before that I before I ever came around, um, and that's the kind of legacy that I that, that I cherish. I always have five thousand questions, and I'll, I'll I, I so I won't sit here too much longer. But um, tell me a little bit about the history. I know at one point. Um, some of the Methodist Methodist denominations in Latin America were a part of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, they were, and and so is Brazil a part of that? Um, or it was um, okay. And at what point did, you may or may not know this, but at what point did they break away from the Methodist Episcopal Church? Yeah. Um, so in 1930s, so Brazilian Methodism became autonomous in 1930, mm -hmm. in the early 1930s. And in fact, uh, Brazil had churches from both the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. So I was uh, raised in an area where the Southern missionaries arrived. So it's, it, I'm, we're talking in the state of Sao Paulo where I was born and raised. Mm -hmm. So the missionaries that were responsible for that area of the country were coming from the South. In fact, the, 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 the missionary that established the school that I just mentioned, her name is Miss Martha Watts. She was from Kentucky. And, uh, and so she established the school where I was raised in 1881. But there were Methodist missionaries from the north. And that's going to be confusing, but the Methodist missionaries from the north of the U.S. were in the southern part of Brazil. So it's inverted geography right there. Yeah, yeah. Most of those missionaries from the Methodist Episcopal Church coming from the north, from, the, from New York, from the Boston area, from Philadelphia, arrived in South America, actually through Argentina and Uruguay, and made their way north into the southern part of Brazil. Hmm. Uh, so historically, Brazilian Methodism has a little bit, uh, echoes a little bit the, the divisions of, of Methodism in the 19th century in the United States. So the, the southern part of Methodism is a little bit more cosmopolitan, more, uh, a little bit more liberal, perhaps. Whereas the, the Methodism of the north part of Brazil or central and north part of Brazil tend to be a little bit more conservative, more rural, reflecting a little bit the context of the U.S. South in the 19th century. Yeah. So I'm curious, Felipe, was there a point, you know, you're raised in the Methodist Church in Brazil, um, and we'll talk about your entrance into the U.S., and and I think that that kind of coincides with your your academic journey as well. But was there a point that 
you decided I am a Methodist. Um, yeah. And that it was it was not just the the space and the environment you were raised in, but it it it's the expression of Christianity that you feel at home in. Was there a moment for you or a time as yeah. that, that came into view for you? That's a good question. Yeah, there is, I think, one big moment in my life. There, there I think there are several important moments, uh, and I would trace them back to my childhood, really. So there is there are elements of being raised Methodist in a largely Catholic context that really uh, stress one's identity because you're pretty much a religious minority in an environment that is predominantly Catholic. So being raised Methodist, you are kind of the the odd person in the room always. So that there were aspects of that identity that were always reinforced and reinscribed in me because of that context. But as I was a, a, around 15 years old. Uh, I had this huge privilege of joining a group of Methodist, Brazilian Methodists that went into this pilgrimage to the holy sites of Methodism in England. Uh, that was a moment where I certainly uh, felt strongly um, that I was identified, that that story, that I belonged in that story that I was studying, uh, that Methodism was not just a movement, you know, led by the Wesleys that you know, crossed the Atlantic into the US and then the missionaries from the US moved you know, to other places of the world. Uh, I felt like that was my story that was being told. So I was witnessing the birth of one aspect of my story while I was there in England in the, in the sites of Methodism. And, and I felt connected to that story. I felt that I belonged and I wanted to, to kind of follow along that tradition. Uh, I do remember being, as a young person, very impressed by the how I described it at the time was I was so impressed by what happens to society as a whole when a group of people are fully committed to the gospel, you know. So there was that kind of like the transformative power of the gospel in, in challenging power structures within a, a certain society. That that struck me, and I, I felt strongly that I wanted to be part of that. And so from then on, I was like. Uh, you know, in through high school, I was reading philosophy and theology uh, already by myself a little bit. I was, I became more deeply involved in the church mm-hmm. um, because I felt like, yeah, I need, I need this in my life. I, I mm-hmm. am this, but now it's time for me to to be something in that tradition as well. Yeah, beautiful. So take me on that journey. Um, you go to undergrad in in Brazil. I do, yeah. So our uh, our system, our educational systems are slightly different. So my undergraduate degree in Brazil is actually my seminary degree. So our bachelor's in theology uh, back home is the equivalent of an MDiv in here. And it's a four-year program in seminary in addition to a first year prior to going to seminary where you are within the annual conference and it's called a, a pre-theological program hmm. where you're assessing and uh, the church is helping you to assess your vocation and discern your path into ordained ministry or theological education. So that happened in my first year. And then in the following four years, uh, I was in seminary. Uh, so it's it's my theological formation happened in there at the Methodist University of Sao Paulo, uh, about three hours from where I was raised. And it's uh, um, to this day still the, the, the one of the most important uh, centers for theological education for Brazilian Methodism. Wow. I just I'm I'm thinking about the the ways that having 
a pre-theological space, like a, a pre-seminary space. Um, I'm just thinking how helpful that must be. Um, it was very helpful. You're right. Yeah, it was very helpful. Um, it, it was, uh, so the, the classes themselves were not intense. They were very introductory and they're really uh, meant to help you discern and for the church to to walk with you in that process before you go to seminary. Mm. So um, it, it's a smaller program, but it, it helped me a lot. It also, it was a moment where the, the program invites you to be fully connected to your local church. So at that time I had, uh, I was already working uh, in, a, in a church setting outside of my home church that was kind of a um, an ecclesial based community as you know, that were uh, following the model later, I would learn this, but following the model of liberation theologies in Latin America, that were uh, trying to reconfigure the church from the bottom up, not necessarily as a structure or as a building, but certainly as a certain commitment to being in the places where life is tough, uh, where life is, is there's a lot of pain and suffering. So I was already in that, pre-seminary year, I was already doing some formal work, uh, having some leadership responsibilities in that setting, which was a very poor neighborhood where my home church had a, um, it, it was bought as a retreat center in the, back in the 80s. And then the city grew in that direction and it became a very impoverished neighborhood. So uh, when I was in that working there, we were trying to do work with the kids and the teenagers in the neighborhood. And eventually, as I joined seminary, I started having some pastoral responsibilities over that community. So at what point, because you're a lay person, right? I am. What point did you discern that being a clergy person was not the, the the vocation for you yeah it happened uh throughout my seminary experience and it's funny it's not necessarily that it was not a discernment necessarily of letting go of ordained ministry it was a discernment that led me to believe that my real vocation and my passion is in teaching and, and so i i made that very clear throughout through my uh, church leaders in brazil that i wanted to continue on studying that I wasn't satisfied with the four year of, four years of seminary education. That the nerdy in me needed a little bit more. So I wanted to to move to the U.S. and pursue graduate education in theology. Um, and at that time, uh, the Brazilian Methodist Church had this requirement that to uh, proceed in in the ordination process, you needed to be appointed in a local parish full time. So I had to interrupt my ordination process with them when I moved to the United States, this was in 2009. And during my master's degree and eventually through my doctoral program, the discernment became very clear that I wanted to teach and I wanted to be in, in the academy and, do, uh, and both teach and do research. And at that time, I realized that I, uh, this is not a vocation in which I need ordination. And so I, I felt like uh, I, it would be more, uh, honest to that sense of vocation that I had in me if I did not pursue ordination. And I'm very glad that this was the discernment and I'm very glad to be a lay theologian. Oh, so good. And as a lay person as well, I, um, I am always grateful for the ways that 
I believe the Holy Spirit creates discernment opportunities for all of us, but I, I, I'd love to double click on when the Holy Spirit helps a lay person discern their calling to lay ministry, to, to bring their gifts, but to bring it as a non-ordained person, non-clergy person. Um, so when you, when you get to the U.S., um, I, I don't, I don't think we have any um, Methodist Church of Brazil churches in the no. states. So, how do you, how do you find us? How do you find the United Methodist Church? And, and I'm also curious how you found us, like how you experienced us when you got here. Um, and and when sort of you felt the desire, the call to attach yourself to this particular denomination here in the States. Yeah, yeah I, I will admit from the beginning, it was cultural shock. Because as I was narrating before, I was coming from a very minoritized religious group where we mm -hmm. our identity shaped around the fact that we're very small. Hmm. Uh, and then I arrived, my first experience in the U.S. was in Dallas, Texas, and I was at Perkins School of Theology for my master's, living on mm -hmm. campus, and right next to Perkins School of Theology, there is Highland Park, United Methodist Church, an enormous church, yeah, a huge congregation, huge congregation, and I was, uh, it was shock, you know, how, how come this single United Methodist congregation is wealthier than my entire denomination back in brazil right the, mm. so I, I had that type of experience like how of entering into a space where methodism was mainstream that mm. methodism was that everyone knew a methodist or a methodist church in their city and so there was a it was a learning curve for me and eventually i felt that it, an environment like that was too big so i i went into and searched smaller congregations uh, especially with immigrant communities in my time that I was in Dallas. And that's where I felt like, yeah, there, United Methodism became interesting to me because it, I was realizing that there might be a very mainstream status quo, more or less Methodism, how I was perceiving it, and a more, you know, on the ground, local form of ministry that is happening amongst mig migrant communities, among communities of color. And I felt like, yeah, this... United Methodism is more diverse, and I, I felt more at home with that type of localized, with migrant communities than uh, that experience, the first experience that I had with cultural shock in, in such an enormous United Methodist church. Take me a little bit on the journey. So you started at Perkins. Yep. And what happens there that sort of takes you down this this deeper academic road yeah i think um i there in in my time at perkins i felt um that my vocation in teaching and research was affirmed really affirmed and uh that i wanted to to continue to do that and i had um, excellent professors that supported me along the way and they said you should continue on this path. So um, then it's application season for doctoral work um, and me encountering different avenues of, and possibilities. Um, 
there was also the experience, uh, also something related to my scholarship and my experience in Dallas was the, the experience of displacement, of, of being outside of, of my home base for the first time um, as a young person uh, after uh, just a few months after getting married. So there's like uh, the life of the beginnings of the life of the migrant, which I think it's now as I look back, we're at play there. And I, I felt then this moved me in certain directions in scholarship. That's when I started reading more intently uh, works on post-colonial theory and started to think more deeply about the impacts of colonialism in religious communities and theology. And that put me in a path, a certain research path that I, I consider to be in still today. Mm. And, and I, you've written so many articles um, around this particular piece, this intersection of theology and the church with politics and economics um, and, and, and how um, colonization plays into that um, without needing to sign up for your next course. <laughs> Get us in there. What, what has been the part that has piqued your interest? What have you, um, what have you learned in that, in that work and that research? Yeah. Uh, flashback to my first months in the U.S., I was I arrived at the peak of the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. Mm, okay. Big financial crises. Mm -hmm. The banks are being, um, you know, uh, in crisis. And at that time, I started reading newspapers and I came across this expression that um, suggested that we needed to save the banks. So I was struck by that language of salvation associated to banks. What are need, What are banks uh, to be saved? What are they being saved from? What are mm. they being saved for? So that put me in that path of try, trying to understand the language of salvation in relationship to the financial crises. Uh, and in my doctoral work, my research was trying to understand how financial discourse functions and informs or perhaps is informed by a certain religious uh, sensibility. I landed on a project that helped me to think about the category of the future. Uh, so my first book project that came out of my dissertation research uh, is called Trading Futures. And in the title, there's a play of words in there. So there is future as the name of the things we aspire to, where we deposit our hope. Uh, so it's in Christian circles, that's the, the theme of eschatology. What do we hope for? What, what can we, we expect for tomorrow? What is God bringing about in the world? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, futures is also a name of a commodity that one can buy and sell in financial markets. And, and I was intrigued by that, by the use of the same word. And I'm arguing in, in this book and in my work that uh, Today, because of the proliferation of futures as commodities, it, it is harder and harder for us to imagine the future and hope for the future that is something other than just the repetition of the present. So uh, it's harder to celebrate Advent, is perhaps what I'm trying to suggest, in a time where futures are being predicted, commodified, and traded in financial markets. So my purpose, perhaps my hope to speak in terms of Christian eschatology is for us to resist that type of futurity that is being uh, traded and commodified in the market 
and perhaps sustain hope in modes of insurrection, modes of interruption that go against that flow of those futures that are being traded in financial markets. Felipe, you're literally pinging all of these different <laughs> parts of my being right now. Um, so from your work, but also then from your perspective, I'm curious what the role of the academy might be in, in rejecting this trading of futures idea and, and rejecting this commodification of the future. Like what's the role of the academy in that, uh, particularly the, the, the religious space, the, the seminary? I think the 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 role my I see my role in the academy as one of providing language and provocations for students, aspiring seminary theological students to um, to see those connections, if futures and the futures as the site of hope and futures as commodity, and then think deeply about it, and then when they go out in their work and their ministry, that they try to present communities with alternatives. Um, so I, I, I feel like my role as a teacher, as someone who is producing scholarship, is always to uh, study what's happening, uh, but not in, in a merely descriptive way, but one that evokes something that summons things that could come otherwise. Uh, so there is a certain prophetic dimension to teaching that I find important. And clearly for us here at Boston School of Theology, at Boston University School of Theology, this prophetic legacy is important. It's what uh, shapes our identity as the school of the prophets. You know, we're home. We were home to uh, Howard Thurman, to um, Elizabeth Howard Shaw, Martin Luther King Jr. So there is that dimension of teaching to me that provokes students to think otherwise, to, that challenges them to think otherwise. And, and let's let's continue to go down that 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 train of thought then what what does it mean for the church what does it mean for like local congregations from your perspective to to resist th this 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 pull to simply and I, i'm i'm synthesizing this for myself right now so feel free to correct me but the way that we have commercialized our faith mm -hmm. and that I mean, I, I, I wonder if it's it, it's even, I wonder why it's so hard for us to actually lean into concepts of hope um, now. And I wonder if part of it is because we're so used to how much does it cost to get to this outcome, not how in sync with the holy and what God's already doing. Um, it, it, I said a I, lot there. <laughs> yeah, you, you said it powerfully. Yes, I agree with all of that. I I, I feel I do believe there is um, there are challenges for us in proclaiming hope of or, or like uh, as the New Testament would say, right? Of giving an account of of the hope that is in us, because there are so many other structures around us that foreclose the possibility of hope. So when we come into the Advent season, I'm imagining people are coming into our pews. And they're worried about their student loans. And it's very hard to imagine the future when you 
all that you want to do is actually pay back your loans because they're so stifling, right? You you have this pressure mm. over you. So when you're indebted, the possibility of hoping becomes restricted, right? If you have medical loans, if your mortgage is more than is becoming more and more expensive every day. So all of those systems of debt are in I'm arguing that there are systems that foreclose the possibility of us imagining and hoping the future. So Advent season, to go back to that image, since we are going through Advent right now, mm-hmm. it, it becomes harder for, for us to, to hope and expect the coming of something different. So I think the role of the church is to continue to proclaim that, but also then to engage powerfully in those systems that foreclose the possibility of hope. At the rise of, I mean, at the moment of the financial crisis, there were some churches that started to paying back and paying off some of their members' loans and uh, and to help them, and and so they they started to re envision what stewardship campaigns could be, instead of just building another classroom or another temple here or there. Why don't we kind of collect? some of our funds to help someone or someone in our community or to build a trust fund where students that are right now in our community can actually pay for their studies uh, as they go to college or for members of our communities to pay off their medical debts. So I I think there are experiments in being church that are connected and I think that are speaking powerfully to how one can be a church of Advent, a church of hope, in a, in a context that is always pushing hope um, against ourselves in many ways and making the future be just more like a continuation of the present. What's the role of theology in decolonizing, and I think this is a word, decommodifying the church and faith. What's How does theology help us do that work? Good question. Um, I would begin saying that theology is, in, is implicit in the problem, right? So there, there we must, first of all, uh, have some humility here and to suggest that um, that Christian forms of theology have been complicit and helped shape structures of power and injustice in the world. So um, as someone who is committed to or the Christian faith, to the United Methodist uh, uh, faith, I, I speak from within, but also in a sense pushing back against some of the those power structures that are still present within our faith. So what is theology for? Theology I, is a way of interpreting social dreams differently. That's how, like a working definition for me, right? You know how you go to a therapist and psychoanalysis interprets dreams that you had overnight? Mm-hmm. I sometimes think of theology as interpretation of social dreams. Mm-hmm. For example, the dream of a promised land, the dream of where uh, workers will work and they will live in the houses that they built, you know, from the prophet Isaiah. So those are like, I, I think that I, I'm, I tend to think of them as social dreams that are coming out of the moments of pressure in society. And those who are under pressure, those who are being oppressed are the ones who are dreaming those different dreams. 
these are dreams that are not Pharaoh's dreams, right? Uh, it's like dreams of people who are building the houses and not living in them. Mm. So of course that they dream that they will build houses and then live in them because clearly they're not living in them. So you see that there's something in the dream itself that speaks one to a certain injustice in the present. People are building houses and not living in them. But then there's that kind of aspiration, that proclamation that something different could emerge, that people will work and build houses and live in them. So I, that's uh, theology for me is that, it's all of that, is the possibility of criticizing structures of injustice and the possibility of announcing uh, a different world to come. Let's take a quick break. Felipe, um, I understand that while you're not, you were not a general conference delegate um, at the special session in 2019, you did take a group of students um, to observe from, I'm guessing from Boston University or Boston School of Theology. No, uh, I was uh, in 2019, I was still teaching at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. So my students were from there. Okay. And um, I'm curious what your experience was of, uh, I was a general conference delegate. I was on the floor of the special session. I know what my experience was uh, on the floor, but I'm curious what your experience was, maybe even if you can speak to the experience of your students. Um, yeah, I just love to hear some of that. Yeah. Um, it was uh, an experience filled with contradictions. Uh, so here's how the group, uh, so I, I led a group of students uh, together with Ryan, uh, Reverend Diana Bond, a deacon in the California Nevada Annual Conference, who worked at, uh, at the seminary as well. Um, and we had about 10 students, I want to say 10 students. Half of the students were queer United Methodist students seeking, uh, seeking ordination in the denomination. Mm. The other half were uh, Tongan students whose caucus in California and Nevada at the time had decided to, to support the traditionalist plan. So a little bit of the, the floor of general conference was represented in our class. Oh my gosh. Wow. However, that's the other side of the contradiction. Our group flourished in our differences. Uh, because our Tongan students and friends in that class uh, stood up and uh, loved us deeply. So we um, were, after the decision to approve the traditional uh, plan uh, was passed, uh, there was a gasp in our group. People were uh, weeping and, and they were, we were sad. There was mourning and deep, a sense of loss uh, for many of our students, a sense of betrayal. Uh, that the church they loved uh, was betraying them, that also the church they called them into ministry, and without which their ministry makes no sense. Um, so that that was the general tone of our conversation. And, and so we had several debriefing sections that were difficult, but the students were there for each other uh, in a way that I didn't feel that general conference 
that the different sides and different groups at General Conference were standing there for each other. Uh, we, we, our class had holy conferencing. We, we disagreed. We, you know, we read stuff together. We studied together. We prayed together. Uh, we had worship together. And I think we came out of this process more united. Uh, and all of us a, a little bit sad from what we had observed in there. Felipe, as a, as a member, a lay member of the United Methodist Church, what was your response to the passing of the traditional plan? Um, it was uh, a, a response of, um, my personal response was of deep sadness and disappointment. Uh, that of a church that decided to to uh, embrace uh, what I perceive to be a very unjust type of legislation that was discriminatory um, and that was just harmful um, to people that I knew that were there with me, uh, so I I could see their pain, you know. So that was it was a sense of disappointment and uh, a clear. Uh, vision I felt of the brokenness of the world being reflected in a church that is equally broken. Um, I also felt that um, there was a failure in the very task of conferencing where, where I felt like there was no conversation. There was, uh, there were lobbying was happening. I felt like we, mm. we were in a, in a, a political sen uh, scenario where people were making decisions and trade-offs um, and not really discerning things together. Mm -hmm. It was disappointing on that level. It felt like the very structure of general conference failed the discerning process. Mm. There was a discernment process that was put into place uh, with the commission on the way forward. And that process and that discernment process that was discerned in previous general conferences was not uh, respected, was not honored and General Conference decided to go in a different way. So uh, I know this is a very critical perspective. I'm, I'm very critical of the decision. I'm very critical of the traditionalist plan. I'm very critical of the, the theological premises uh, behind the traditionalist plan and the exclusion uh, of queer people from, from ordina ordained ministry and the life of the church. Uh, but certainly my overall feeling and impression of general conference in 2019 was just sadness, you know, grief. So, so, so then that makes me, you know, ask this question as you've watched the last few years of United Methodism, um, you probably weren't watching it as closely as I, mm -hmm. um, or maybe you were, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, we came out of that, that special session, the annual conference season in the U.S., reaction to yeah. a special session for sure. The protocol comes on board. We go in and then the global pandemic, which which changes the whole nature of what it means to to probably be human, but but definitely what it means to do church. Yes. Um and and through that the um the the postponement of general conference I imagine there were probably trips set up that also trips with students that probably got 
postponed and and as well for you and and then the launch of the GMC. I'm, I'm just curious all of those things. I'm curious for you as an as a as an academic, but also someone who is invested in United Methodist Church. What was was there anything that ground you? Um, that that really sort of helped you uh, navigate. Not that any of us got through it necessarily; we endured it. But I'm just curious how you kind of what was your thinking as all of these different pieces were uh, coming, not coming together, even just happening around us over these last few years. Yeah. I, I think what I'm hearing in you and or what this is making me think is what are the things that grounded me through those very difficult processes? So certainly yeah. something about the life of the, the daily life of the church that was important to me. Um, it was important to me at some point to say that what happens in general conference does not represent the daily experience of a United Methodist person. Hmm. Uh, like to understand that, that, that there are good reasons for us to be organizing the way that we are, but, General Conference is not the totality of the United Methodist experience. Um, yeah. So I, I felt that I needed to be grounded in, in practices and communities that presented Methodism to me in a different way compared to what I experienced at this special session in 2019. So that was, so it's an element of piety, really. I, mm -hmm. I need to my piety elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go back to the language of hope. I needed to recalibrate my hope from the kind of, politics of the denomination to the daily life and the practice and the social piety of a community. So that was important to me. Um, it was also important to, for me to reaffirm my kind of vocation. So as a teacher dealing with students to whom the church matters deeply, but also students uh, that were harmed by the church um, and perhaps are not coming back to the church and yet are longing for spiritual communities uh, outside of, of the kind of harm that has been inflicted upon them by organized forms of uh, church communities. And so my commitment has been, I, I would say, strengthened uh, after General Conference, precisely because I witnessed firsthand the type of harm that the church can make. And I've been recommitting myself, hopefully every day, uh, to helping people um, live in communities that and produce communities and thrive in communities that are not harmful. So I'm aware that um, over the last few years, you've been doing some work around the decolonization of the church. And if I understand correctly, how that possibly connects to United Methodism becoming a more regionalized polity. Yeah. And, and so I'd love for you to just help me kind of get into that and, and sort of the, what are you positing um, uh, for us? And, and, and it seems to me that in some respects, you, you this this research is deeply connected to um, the work we've got to do at General Conference in 2024. So I just love to get a sense of sort of what you've been working on and what you've been discovering and what you're what you're uh, hoping that we might consider 
um, both delegates, but also the church more broadly. Yeah. Um, so I've been trying to, to uh, over the past years, especially since uh, 2018 and 2019, at around General Conference, but when my involvement with this group of scholars and practitioners from all across the world, and not only United Methodists, but Methodists from different traditions, British Methodism, South African Methodism, um, Methodists from India, Methodists from Latin America, We've been gathering together in uh, what we called uh, the World Parish Webinar, uh, which mm. has been happening since uh, early 2020. But it, it's a result of a gathering that we had um, in England in 2018, right after the Oxford Institute for Methodist Studies. So a group of us met in Cambridge. So we moved from Oxford to Cambridge and we had a method uh, meeting there where we're, we're trying to think about the practice and the theories and the wisdom of decolonization as applied to Methodism. And one of the outcomes of that gathering was why don't we gather, you know, monthly or regularly um, as Methodists from across the globe to talk a little bit more and trying to, to share experiences around decolonization. So I've been involved with that group since 2018 and um, we produced a, a work, a, a collective book that I edited called Decolonizing Methodist Theology. Uh, and, and my apologies, Decolonizing Wesleyan Theology that should be out in 2024. And it has uh, several chapters written by Methodists from different fields of knowledge. So we have biblical scholars, theologians, ethicists uh, from all across the world. And they are investigating this category or the possibility and the hope of, of decolonizing the church. Alongside that project, there's another volume that I'm co-editing with uh, David Scott uh, from the General Board of uh, Global Missions on uh, Methodism and American Empire, where we're trying to think the over the past, since the halfway point of the 20th century after uh, the Second World War, how this category of of a global Methodist church or even of a global denomination is being impacted by imperialism, right? That, that there might mm. be a, a way of a connection there between this idea of wanting to be a global denomination with a certain expansionist and imperialistic project of wanting to establish outposts across the globe. So what's going on? What, how does that image of a global church shape our understanding of the church? And what are we thinking when we say that the church should be a global church, what globe do we have in mind? Um, so that's an open question for me. And I, uh, I, I tend to think that there are ways in which we think of the globe as a totality, like as a, as a whole system that is more or less homogenous, that is very concerning to me. So whenever I think of, a, of global Methodism, I want to think more of, about a, 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 an assembly of localized, indigenized forms of Methodism that have ways of coming together, but are ways that do not reject or refuse their particularities. So when I think back to your question about regionalization, I feel like this is a good way of codifying that principle, that we can be a church of global proportions and global reach without having uh, one nation or one group of people having more power over others. Because I, I do feel like today we have a structure that is more or less um, 
centralized around certain power structures within the United States. And it's very difficult for churches and, and central conferences to really navigate that complex ecclesial system and structure that we have. Um, so I, we have in one of these volumes, uh, a scholar who suggests that it's one of the struggles for delegates to general conference is that general conference feels a little bit by like the United Method, the United States system of government. And there's some people just, they just don't understand it. You know, Robert's rules of order, all mm -hmm. of the systems that are, that might be very familiar to delegates from the U S but that are very foreign to people who, who have different forms of assembling and different forms of communal deliberation. So I think the regional plan might uh, be an interesting alternative to think about and actually honor our differences, even as we try to be, uh, you know, an international global denomination. What are some of the main arguments against uh, thinking differently, even about what it means to be a global denomination what, and, and what many of us are calling regionalization? What do you think are some of the main arguments and, and against that? And, and, and do you have sort of thoughts about um, how to speak to those arguments at all? I think most of the arguments that I hear, um, and I'm, I'm, I, I must confess that I, uh, I'm not as plugged in to this, the conversations as you are. Um, but it, it's a certain fear that regionalization will eventually ruin the unity of the church. So th I think the, the main argument that I hear, if I hear it correctly, is a fear that regionalizing our church structures and polity might mean that we will lose our identity. Um, and there, there will be a loss of, of our ecclesial and denominational identity if we allow different regions to codify their church experience in different ways. That's, uh, I think it's the only possible explanation other than the more cynical one, which would be that some people are just um, a little bit concerned that regionalization would mean that the center of power of the church will no longer be in one country. How do you speak to that? You listen and you try to love people, but um, you 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 need to. If that's what's happening, if if there's a fear of loss of power, you you need to name it, and mm. uh, that's my position. I think yeah yeah. You, yeah the church is not about accumulating power. It's just I'm curious and I want to explore. Do you think that a regionalized church, a decolonized church, could have an impact on how a local congregation sees itself? And and here's the, the image I'm going to right now, for better or for worse. A young Brazilian academic walking into a large predominantly white congregation, might they think of themselves and might they connect to this young Brazilian 
academic differently if they are in spaces that are acknowledging that our differences are in fact real, but not a detriment to our unity. Well said, yes. Um, I affirm that for sure. I do believe that a, a church structure could communicate something that would make that experience possible. Hmm. And um, to go back to that experience, um, I felt in, in, in some settings, the difference between being recognized as different and the difference of being welcomed as, as a member of the community. There's a radical difference that foreigners will tell you that people who are navigating spaces that are just, you know, traditional majoritarian places, they will let you know easily. Like I know the difference between being, oh yeah, here is someone different, assimilate to us as opposed to it matters to us that you're here uh, and we will with your presence become something else because you're here that's for me very different ecclesiologies right there Ooh. with your presence we will become something different and i would add and we welcome it exactly yeah mm -hmm. we, we, we're asking the spirit for it and we're trying to put ourselves in a position to receive that kind of gift, that kind of disruption. Whew, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. Yes, and thanks for the, for the idea of like, it, it, the welcome comes after that as, as a gift as well. Mm. So from your seat as a professor of theology at Boston School of Theology? Yep. Um, but also as a United Methodist, what do you think General Conference in 2024 needs to be about? Good question. Uh, it certainly needs to acknowledge the harm of our denomination and, and what has happened over the past five or six years. I think there needs to be a moment of accountability uh, of some form of at least the beginning of, of a project of reconciliation of naming our sins. I think that's that would be first on my mind. Secondly, I do believe that the General Conference should strive to pass some form of regionalization that would allow for, for the church to continue to be uh, a global body, but one that allows for greater diversity and greater um, multiplicity within our, within our church body. Um, Third, I, I would love for General Conference to rethink forms of conferencing. Uh, and I, I find that it's going to be hard to do that while at General Conference, but I, I'm finding it difficult to, to perceive the space of General Conference as a space of discernment, uh, of collective, really church discernment. So if the church could envision, if General Conference could envision other ways in which our discernment could happen outside of General Conference, uh, I would really love to hear good news about that. Felipe, do you have hope for the United Methodist Church? 
uh, always. Uh, I mean, for me, uh, the language of hope is uh, a little bit like uh, being a stubborn person myself. Like I refuse to accept that this is the way that things ought to be, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so hope for me is a way of, again, to go back to that language of saying that things are not right, but that they could, that there might be transformation um, that is still possible. So yes, I do. I, I do commit to to hope for United Methodism. Did I just hear you say I commit to hope for United Methodism? It is. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh. Because I, I do yes. Um thank you for catching that. Yeah, I do believe that there there hope is a kind of a commitment as well. It's not just uh, an aspiration. It's, it's, it's a kind of a, a commitment to construct that reality that you are affirming with your hope. Felipe, I have so much to be grateful for in this conversation we've had. Um, even just that last second there of mm-hmm. being committed. I mean, I almost want to change this question that I ask everybody. You know, do you have hope? No, are you committed to hope for the United Methodist Church? Man, which is definitely a, and again, I'm not quite sure this is really a word, the decommodification of hope. Um, This is not a, do we have the resources for hope? This is a commitment um, that runs deeper than just what we see here and what we could trade. Um, Wow. Yes. Dr. Felipe Maya, thank you so much for your work, um, your leadership, the ways that you are embodying United Methodism in the academic and seminary space. And I'm just really grateful for your time today because I, I know for me, I'm taking this conversation with me into um, the Bar of General Conference. So thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you, Derek. What a what a gift you are. What what a gift this podcast is. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, awesome. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.